The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Civil rights, participatory democracy, the belief in liberal institutions, you know, versus, you know, what are what he calls essentially the bad 60s, you know, basically everything that happens from 1968 onwards, you know, the turn to radical politics, the idea that students went too far, you know, uh, by turning to ideas like Marx and Lenin and all those scary sort of people. And so, you know, I, I really want to sort of make the case that that framework really needs to be called into question. Because not only does it make a sort of false caricature of the very real critiques and lessons learned by activists of the 60s, you know, not only does it dismiss, for example, as well, you know, the turn to black power and the rise of the Black Panthers uh, and the urban rebellions of the North and West in this country by African Americans, but you know, if one is to accept this this notion that post 68 is the is the bad 60s, then that would mean essentially that you'd have to put the entirety of the GI movement and the rise of Vietnam veterans against the war in the bad 60s camp as well. You know, and I think for some of us, you know, actually being called bad might be somewhat of a badge badge of honor. But um, you know, um, I think what we have to actually be, be be frank about is the fact that the bad 60s are actually what ended the war, and that was due to in part a number of factors, but in particular the disintegration and breakdown of the military. You know, and it's the famous article by uh, Colonel Robert D. Heinel Jr., as he put it, in the Armed Forces Journal in 1971. And, you know, let's, let's keep in mind, this is the Armed Forces Journal, hardly the bedrock of uh, communist propaganda uh, um, <laughs> at the time. He wrote, quote, the morale, discipline, and battle worthiness of the United States Armed Forces are lower and worse than at any time in this century and possibly in the history of the United States. By every conceivable indicator, our army that now remains in Vietnam is in a state approaching collapse with individual units avoiding or having refused combat, murdering their officers and non-commissioned officers, drug-ridden and dispirited where not near mutinous. All the foregoing facts and many more dire indicators of the worst kind of military trouble point to widespread conditions among American forces in Vietnam that have only been exceeded in this century by the collapse of the Tsarist armies in 1916 and 1917. <laughs> you know, in other words, Vietnam actually became a war within, a battleground that pitted troops in a struggle for their survival against a new enemy, the military itself. And I think Gitlin's framework also begins to fall apart when one considers the legacy of Vietnam veterans against the war, and that's what I really want to spend most of this time about, um, because not only was Vietnam Veterans Against the War the first national anti-war veterans organization to exist during a current war, uh, it was also largely a working class blue collar organization, which really belies the sort of myth that the 60s was just a bunch of middle class students, you know, or long haired hippies dropping acid in Golden Cape Park, or whatever, all those sort of uh, myths that are put forward to uh, to attack the so-called bad 60s, you know, and, you know something much more threatening happened after 1968, and veterans and GIs were on the front lines of battle. Now, VDAW at its peak in 1972 had 25,000 members, including 2,000 in Vietnam, and chapters in every state and almost at every base around the world. Um, they literally became uh, the leading edge, the vanguard of the anti-war movement in the early 1970s. It was an organization that brought the truth about war crimes in Vietnam to the fore. They used creative guerrilla tactics and street antics. 
They brought attention to the failing VA system and demanded attention to veterans' health care, including shedding light on post-traumatic stress disorder, really for the first time making that an issue, and also the devastating effects of Agent Orange. You know, VDAW re-energized a waning civilian anti-war movement and cut through the Nixon administration's lies because their service in Vietnam gave them credibility. And yet, an organization of over 25,000 in 1972 lost thousands of members over the course of the 70s, and is really, to be honest, a mere ghost of itself today. It's not a mass movement, obviously, by any means. You know, and, and the question I really want to put on the table is, why did the most powerful anti-war vets organization, you know, decline and strengthen numbers? You know, who's to blame? What happened? Because I think, unfortunately, a number of historians of VVAW, and I'm going to show you two books I'll pass around here, Gerald Nicosia in this book, Home to War, uh, Andrew Turner in this book, Andrew Hunt, this book called The Turning, uh, both excellent books that people should read to get the, the facts, the story, but the analysis, I think, of those books are actually quite wrong because I think they're really just... Uh, promoting uh, uh, what is really the same sort of narrative that Gitlin does, that the paradigm of the good 60s, bad 60s, that the radical left is to blame for the failure of the VVAW. You know, and as this myth goes, you know, that, that the radical left you know, destroyed VVAW, and if you work with the radical left today, I think, uh, you know, this sort of myth that's put forward, then you, know, you better beware, because uh, uh, the sort of myth goes that you know, they're going to infiltrate your organization, split it, divide it with all their nefarious evil aims of taking over the organization, etc., etc. And so that story gets repeated, of course, with the rem memory that the Revolutionary Communist Party, the largest Maoist organization in the 60s, you know, did in fact take over the national office of uh, VVAW by uh, the mid-70s. And you know, and did operate in all in all honesty in a very top-down, undemocratic uh, method and use manipulation, obviously. But I don't think that's the whole story of what happened. And I think we need to really have a more nuanced uh, understanding uh, of what what happened throughout the 70s and what happened in the trajectory of VBAW, because I think their lessons are actually quite important for us today. Because I think the argument about the RCP and VBAW is often transplanted onto the present with a warning that activists you know, need to beware of collaborating with the left. And, and so that's sort of what I'd like to um, begin uh, sort of challenging today in the, how, many, how much time I have left? No, <laughs> five minutes. Plenty of time. Okay. You've got plenty of time. <laughs> so really to begin with, I want to say my first argument is that social movements are shaped and defined by outside forces, by the objective conditions of the world around them. VVAW declined in membership in the final years of the Vietnam War, you know, for a number of reasons, but particularly due to the fact that the war at least appeared on the surface to be winding down. You know, of course we know that the bombing never stopped, but the ground troops had been withdrawn by 1973, Nixon had signed the peace accords, the draft ended, and you know, and likewise the anti-war movement as a whole was really in decline. In fact, the largest you know, national mobilizations, uh, the final ones really happened in 1971 uh, uh, around Dewey Canyon 3. You know, the military projects, the draft counseling, the financial contributions began to dry up. So, you know, I'm arguing that the challenges of organizing in the mid-70s, you know, the end of the Vietnam War, and frankly, you know, the rising conservative downturn in this country made it difficult to keep VVAW afloat as the mass movement it had been. But, you know, my next point is that, you know, the development of a radical current in VVAW was also in relation to the broader radicalization that occurred throughout the 60s, and in particular, was a response by thousands of veterans to the conditions of the war that they had served in, you know, to the maltreatment of the government, 
to the neglect by the VA, to the complicity of both liberal Democrats and Republicans in continu continuing the war, you know, by the most brutal means, you know, napalm, Agent Orange. And so in response to those conditions, but also at the outrage at events like Kent State and Jackson State, where you know students were, were shot down by the National Guard, you know, all of those uh, um, events uh, began forcing and, and calling into question all sorts of things, activists began looking for deeper politics to make sense of the world around them. I mean, you know, it became clear to many that the system was broken, you know, and the question was, can it be fixed? Or do we need a completely new system? You know, and a significant minority chose the latter. So uh, as VDAW member Bill Branson explained, quote, a lot of us had really expanded our concept of what was going on. We started broadening our viewpoint. We were really identifying with the Vietnamese as not only people who were being oppressed, but they were the ones who were right. We started to get an understanding of imperialism. We became anti-imperialist. We started to see that there was a rich class that was behind us. We saw that it wasn't just going on in Vietnam, it was going on in the United States. And so really to get a sense of, of that, that quote comes from this other book I'm gonna pass around, uh, Winter Soldiers by um, Richard Stasewitz, Haymarket Press is going to be publishing this book. This is probably the better interpretation, I would say. It's an oral history collection uh, of, of VVAW. Um, great. You know, as well, the main cadre of the RCP, which at the time was called the Revolutionary Union, you know, was Joe Ergo, Barry Romo, two individuals who actually had proven themselves as capable leaders. So, I mean, it's not as if Romo just sort of snuck in the back door and then launched a sort of surprise attack, took over the national office one day. You know, Romo had actually testified at Winter Soldier. He was a regional coordinator, an organizer on the West Coast, and then became a national leader. You know, and he took part in the debates against John Kerry. You know, he was the actual Democratic Party operative, actually. You know, over the nature of the events at Dewey Canyon 3, with Kerry arguing that it should mostly focus on lobbying efforts, and so on, <clears throat> while Romo and the more radicals argued that vets should take part in militant street protests. And then as the events unfolded at Dewey Canyon 3, there's actually a debate about how they're going to return the medals uh, at, at that famous protest, with Kerry saying we should just throw them in a, put them in a body bag. We don't want to be disrespectful to our medals. And, and actually, people got so angry at the events that happened. That, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful story. You should learn about the Dewey Canyon 3. As the events, as they confronted you know, the Nixon administration over being able to sleep in the park, as they were denied entrance into the Arlington National Cemetery, all these things radicalized people in those protests that weakened at Dewey Canyon 3, the anger boiled up and they decided, you know, we're going to throw our medals. This is going to be symbolic. And so it was very much a debate, a raucous debate between the moderates and the radicals in, in VBAW. And, you know, and now, you know, really the defining moment of VBAW in many ways is that moment where they're, you know, at the Capitol steps throwing their, their medals off. You know, everyone's favorite quote, I know, is when that guy says, you know, next time we come back, we're going to take these steps, you know, as he throws his medal. Um, so, you know, my point here, uh, uh, obviously, is, um, you know, that the rank and file of VVAW, you know, had agency and the ability to decide who their leaders were and what strategy and tactics they chose, often through contentious and raucous debates, you know, and, and in many instances, the ideas put forth by the radicals made sense to people because they connected with people's lived experiences and the world and in the movement. And so as the left wing grew in VVAW, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's very interesting. What happens, actually, is that they change the structure 
of, of Vietnam veterans against the war, and I just want to raise this, um, to um, have a steering committee made up of all the regional coordinators and representatives from each branch. Uh, and, and they put checks on the national office, actually, so that there's more of a grassroots model for organizing. And really, at this point, I think VVAW is quite a democratic organization. And it's funny, one last little anecdote. When they decide to, um, if you guys don't know this history about Dewey Canyon 3, they decide to um, sleep in the mall. And, and there's an injunction against them. And so um, they have to decide, well, are we going to get arrested? Uh, are, are we going to leave? What are we going to do? And they actually take votes um, on site. And they have this massive debate about what we're going to do and what's going to be next. And they take this vote. And you know, the vote wins by a slim majority that they would uh, disobey the injunction. And, and, and face arrest. And actually, you know, the Nixon administration is so scared at the thought of having to, you know, arrest veterans and what public image disaster that might be that they, they, they give in. It was really uh, one, of the, one of the moments where the anti-war movement really got to come up and, so to speak, on, on, on Nixon and it really empowered uh, VVAW. Uh, um, but, you know, I think another reason I think we have to really take more into account of what happened to VVAW and I think, really, we have to really put the blame much more on the intense level of government infiltration under COINTELPRO and under the Nixon administration. You know, after Winter Soldier in 1971, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, the FBI began recruiting officers and veterans to collect information, uh, purposely creating dissension within the organization by spreading rumors and turning members against each other. Using agent provocateurs, you know, to instigate violence. You know, um, um, Scott Camille, who was featured in, in the Winter Soldier documentary, said that the federal agents, quote, got people thrown out of school. They went to the employers of XGIs and VVAW and got them fired for being communist. I started getting phone calls um, from members saying, hey man, I can't come to meetings anymore. The FBI went to where my mom works and, and threatened uh, that she would lose her job. And so, you know, the, the level of surveillance was so rampant that by 1972, according to Newsweek, you know, they had scores of agents uh, investigating the organization, working in key leadership roles, actually, throughout the organization. Uh, Andrew Hunt in The Turning actually says that uh, the FBI controlled three out of five of VDAW's southern regions, and uh, the Internal Security Division was giving daily briefings to the Nixon administration. And people forget this, but the, the break-in at Watergate uh, was actually about finding evidence linking McGovern to the anti-war movement and to VDAW. Wow. And it's quite, I mean, and, and one thing I want to say is when the FBI recruited uh, uh, members of VDAW, they often preyed on people who had PTSD and people who are really not, um, not stable. And there's a, a sort of famous case of William Lemmer, who literally went insane and began having paranoid delusions, fraught with guilt, confessed but nonetheless then became part of a conspiracy trial against eight members around the uh, Republican National Convention in 1972. It was a famous trial, the Gainesville Eight, uh, and they were, you know, after a year uh, of trial, they were found, all found not guilty, but several of the people that were uh, accused in this, you know, uh, alleged plot that was cooked up by the FBI, several of these members had just severe emotional trauma. One member even uh, from VAW tried to commit suicide. So, I mean, again, when we talk about who is to blame, I think we need to be really clear. It's our government that tried to destroy VAW. It's our government that's blamed, uh, to, to, to blame, I think, for, 
for trying to destroy the left uh, uh, at this period. And I think we need to be really clear and forceful about that. Uh, final things. Now, you could say, well, what about RCP? Um, this is, I think, the tragedy of the this, of this story, is because we have an organization, actually, that has uh, really rotten politics, just to be frank with you. And I, I'm, not, I'm running out of time. I don't have time to go into the Maoist movement. But um, you know, uh, it's 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 somewhat you know the tragedy we live with today. The fact not just that the the, the Maoists um, were in VVW, but the, the Maoists destroyed the potential uh, really for the, for the new left and for the left of the '60s, and that's that's something we have to live with today. But I think it's wrong to sort of uh, sort of have a blanket statement that somehow says that the RCP is somehow uh, the same as every other left group, uh, and, and certainly doesn't share our vision, doesn't share our, our vision of, of, of strategies and tactics for collaborating, collaborating with others for building a strong and healthy GI movement today. And uh, if you're interested, um, I'm, I'm running out of time, but uh, there's a whole lot of more colorful stories I'd like to share with you about some of that trajectory. I'll tell you one. Uh, what's one interesting part is that um, you know, Barry Romo, uh, again, was probably the, the main leader of the RCP in Vietnam Veterans Against the War. And uh, around the mid-70s, what, what their line was is that um, VVAW should be a vets-only, vets-benefits-focused um, group and align themselves with the more conservative, moderate people within the organization as a way to ice out and, and get rid of the other radicals in the organization who were calling for VVAW to be a more multi-issue organization that would address sexism, racism, broader anti-imperialist politics. So it's very interesting to sort of see uh, how some of that played out. Uh, um, but really, the, the split that's probably more famous, and I should really wrap up yes. here, <laughs> is in the later 70s where there's a split in the RCP, Bob Abakian goes one way, uh, Barry Romo goes another, and so um, that leads in 1978, way, way late in the 70s, to the split called Vietnam Veterans Against the War Anti-Imperialist, which as we know is the small fringe that still exists today. So um, I'm going to wrap it up there. I hope you learned a little bit about VVAW, uh, but I really think these lessons have a lot for us today because you know if we're going to move forward and build a healthy GI movement, we need a movement that's uh, non-exclusionary, that allows a healthy raucous debates just like they had in VVAW, and that's the only way we're going to move forward, is to have these debates out and to move forward in a way uh, uh, that, that isn't about excluding people based on their political beliefs. Well, Martin uh, scratched some, uh, some old, uh, <laughs> dug up a few old uh, corpses that I'm not going to, I could stand here and talk for quite a long time about all that. I'm not going to because uh, there are things to be learned from that uh, period, uh, no doubt, and what happened to VVAW. I, I would draw an analogy to another organization, that was the Black Panther Party. Uh, and I worked, uh, actually the first, when I decided I wanted to be a full-time radical and didn't want to work for the legal service program back in 19, uh, when was that, 69. I went to some Black Panther support meetings and I got involved with them. They had a group called Committee, National Committee to Combat Fascism, which was their kind of support arm. And what I saw, and, and I, would, I would argue that the black uh, national struggles suffered far, far more in the way of naked police repression than VBAW uh, ever did. That's my own opinion about it. But the point I want to make is that you can't separate the politics and the political issues and the modus operandi of the Black Panther movement from 
the effects of uh, police repression. In other words, what I'm trying to say is they really uh, work together. And the, the, in some ways, the, the Black Panther movement was hoisted on its own guitar. They, they had practices and undemocratic ways of operating and even racist ways of operating that kept uh, them from growing and expanding and really developing into what they, they could have been. And in a way, I'd say it's the same with the VVAW. Um, the impact of the Maoist movement was very, I was in New York at the time, I remember the New York office was moved out here for uh, safekeeping to Chicago, and that was because of a plan to uh, make it completely a creature of the RCP. That was about 1971, after Winter Soldier. So, those are, those are histories that we all have to live with, and, and Martin's absolutely right. I want to mention one thing, friends, I almost forget this. This book that I know last year I had it here, and some of you got one, this is a very good article about the GI movement at Fort Lewis in the Vietnam War. Very thoughtful, and in some ways I think uh, really challenges Dave Courtright's uh, analysis. And uh, it's very interesting. I brought, I have the last few of these, they're a buck, so if you'd like one, take one. It's a very interesting read. And um, it was in Radical America in about 1975, so that's, that's something I wanted to remind you. I'll show you where uh, awareness has changed. Uh, Martin was mentioning um, PTSD and mentioning the struggles of uh, the Vietnam vets to win uh, recognition and treatment. It's always uh, valuable to go back in history, and uh, at least sometimes, and uh, one of the things you should be aware of is that until 1980, now that was seven years after we had drawn the last troops out of Vietnam, until 1980 there was no recognition in this country of post-traumatic stress disorder as a diagnostic category. <coughs> Today, we live with it all around us, it's accepted in the media, and we don't realize uh, this kind of backward, really uh, <coughs> archaic approach that this country often uh, reflects towards mental illness. And uh, I'm, I was involved in that fight, and it wouldn't surprise you to know that the VA was opposed to it. The VA was opposed to the American Psychiatric Association classifying PTSD as a diagnos diagnosable diagnostic condition. And that was done in 1980. And since then, the VA then was forced, kicking and screaming, to recognize this and actually begin to reach out to soldiers sometimes and treat them. And it's, it's a pretty miserable history. It's not all explained by evil. It's not all explained by people like Richard Nixon or people who came after him. Uh, it's explained by a, a number of things. But the main explanation is that they just don't have the money and the resources to begin to meet the needs that are being presented at their door every day. And you go right down here in Chicago to the, uh, the big VA downtown, and you will find the same problem if you're a veteran. And you've got recurring mental issues, you've got recurring physical issues, you will be put on a list that extend into the next year, literally. So it's a resource question. Bush and his pals, Cheney, they can bleed all they want about the great sacrifices and the heroic warriors, but when it comes to this kind of treatment, which costs a lot and requires a big staffing, uh, they don't do it. And the, the, the microcosm of that is at Fort Drum, where we have a different drummer. <coughs> I know some of you here know this very well. Fort Drum does not have a hospital bed on the base. This is a base with 14,000 combat soldiers. And they want to add 4,000 more, but they can't, uh, haven't yet got a place to put them, right, Nate? So that would be 18,000 people on a base. If, you, if your husband, you wake up in the night and maybe his hands are around your neck, or maybe he's over at the window and he's got a razor blade in his hand, uh, 
there's no place to take him on that base. That's an incredible, uh, it's shocking almost. It is shocking. There's no place to take him. And why? Because uh, part of the privatization, we all heard about Blackwater, right? We've all heard about KBR. We all heard about uh, Halliburton. There are many other forms of privatization, and this is one that we uncovered at Fort Drum. There's a contract, a contract between Samaritan Hospital in Watertown, a civilian not-for-profit hospital, and Fort Drum Command that Samaritan shall be the sole exclusive provider of mental health uh, hospitalization. So they have 28 beds over there. You have a bad week. Guys are having all kinds of problems. They're taking over to Samaritan. There's no place for them. We had the case of Brad Gaskin, some of you read about it on our website. Black soldier did two tours of Iraq, came back, and literally could not function on the base. He literally could not sleep. He could not find any peace. He could not function on the base, and he left. We brought him back, and they insisted on taking him into custody at the base, even though they'd agreed to surrender him, accepted surrender. And he ends up over at Samaritan, and they said, well, there's no beds. And he said, well, put him in a chair. This is uh, 11 at night. And the psychiatrist, to his credit, said, I'm not taking a patient here who doesn't have a bed. And so they said, well, so they drove him 65 miles to the Syracuse VA and put him in a bed there. So that's, I mean, again, it's, it's shocking. We, this prating on about our boys, the heroes, bring them home, look at that plane, the flag on the coffin. And people cannot get a basic, most basic help that you would think that they would be entitled to. It's incredible. And that's the kind of s struggles that we're, that we're all fighting with. I know everyone in this room is aware of all this. I don't want to uh, beat, beat uh, anything that's uh, been said many times. Uh, just a couple quick points about what we're faced with and what we're facing, what the GI movement had and what we, in a different way, lack today. One, of course, and, and it's already been alluded to, is the, um, that there was a large movement. It was a, what I call the big tent. If you've seen the film, Sir, No, Sir, probably almost everyone in this room has seen the film, right? You look around the walls at the Oleo Strut, which was probably the most successful GI coffee house at Fort Hood, Texas. You look around the room, and what do they got? They got Jimi Hendrix here. They got Janis Joplin there. Maybe they got the Jefferson Airplane here. <laughs> and over here they got Che Guevara, can you believe it? <laughs> and it was very clear. And, and the shots of the soldiers, they're wearing tie-dye shirts. They're wearing psychedelic headbands. They're burning incense back in the barracks. In other words, it was a reflection of a countercultural shift. Uh, women, for the first time, when I went to law school, 1964, 63 class, I wasn't in so long ago, there were three women in my class. Three women. This was in Detroit, in a liberal city. Today, over half of law school classes are female, it, routinely, same with medical school. So there's a big changes that have taken place just in our lifetimes. And so, that movements and those movements powered and drove the whole GI process forward. Soldiers wanted to be part of this. They wanted to uh, experience this challenge. And of course, it contained within it the, the concomitant challenge to the, the rigid chain of command. You know, if everyone's equal, we're all, and uh, in fact, the American Servicemen's Members Union, which got a, a brief mention in the film, not, a, not enough in my opinion. Uh, that was a group led by the Workers' World Party, some of you may recall it. And they really did some yeoman work. They did some early pioneering work at Fort Sill and some of the other bases to build a GI union. Not just a GI group, but a GI union that would actually bargain with the command. And one of their demands was an end to surring and saluting. 
Wow, I mean, that's like the Russian Revolution, right? I mean, who are you? You know? And uh, I just was on the phone yesterday with a young soldier who's a brother of Adrian here. And he's up at Camp McCoy, or Fort McCoy, they call it now, I guess. And uh, the command, the officers, these are colonels, came over to the motel where these poor soldiers had taken a night off. Maybe get a hot bath, maybe have a bed that you know, was, wasn't all lumpy. And they're sleeping there, and the colonels come over to the hotel at 11 o'clock at night and start and get a list, a guest list. And they look down and they find soldiers' names, and they come to their rooms, they pound on the doors. And they say, come out of there, come out of there right now. And, and her brother and others came out, and they said, what are you doing over here? And the thing was, the officers were told there were no rooms left. I mean, these are combat veterans. They've served a year in Iraq. They're coming home, and these officers had the audacity to treat them like that. And that gives you a little insight into their mentality, that idea, that serving, saluting thing. And it's a very powerful thing, and it's the cornerstone. Anyone served knows this. It's the cornerstone of the military system. Only five minutes, okay. Uh, so, the, the Big Tent, women, civil rights, and don't forget, and this is alluded to in the film, but it could have been brought out even stronger, and that was the heart, what really had the command totally quaking in their boots in the Vietnam War were the black soldiers in Vietnam. Long LBJ, long been jail, they burned it to the ground. Burned it to the ground. The middle, that's a mutiny you know, in the middle of a war because it was so miserable and so oppressive and the conditions for which people were thrown in there was so terrible and they just burned it. That was African-American troops. That's what really had the command fearful. And today, look at the enlistment of blacks in our military, in the Army, the Marines. It's down by 50%. And that has some effect. That's had some effect on the GI movement because these are folks I'm not romanticizing it, but understand in their gut what this is all about, what this war is all about. So that's an important uh, thing that uh, was very present. I remember at Camp Lejeune, we were down there on a case, and uh, the soldiers there who ran the coffee house. Camp Lejeune, this is the main marine base in the eastern United States. This is a very military combat-oriented place. They had a very successful project, and he said, you know our problem here, Todd? We can't keep the black nationalist books in stock. <laughs> Malcolm X. Eldridge Cleaver, Huey Newton, they couldn't keep them in stock because so many black marines came in wanting them. I mean, that's pretty exciting when you think about it. So those, that was the context of the period. Today we're in a very different period. We're in an all-volunteer force, and I've said this before, and most of you heard it, they knew exactly what they were doing when they set up the Gates Commission in 1973. And it was headed by people like, hell, surprise, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, really? Hmm. And Milton Friedman at the head of it. Milton Friedman, Nobel laureate, blah, 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 right here in Chicago. And he said in a famous article in the New York Times, he said, I believe that the majority of the anti-Vietnam movement is driven by the draft. Really moving right. Because as you know, the draft touches every family. As a person of draft age at that time, it touched me, it touched everyone. Everyone in the universities and schools, high schools, colleges, anywhere you look, was touched by it. And Friedman, didn't get a Nobel laureate for nothing. And he, he saw that that was, the, that was their Achilles heel. And people in the anti-war movement sometimes romantically think that we ended the draft, that we made it so hard for draft boards to function that they no longer could function and that's why they got rid of the draft. Not true at all. And they served 40,000 to 50,000 kids every month at the peak of the war. No problema. 
they add them every month. Yeah, sure. Down here at uh, uh, maybe out of Oakland, over in Ann Arbor, maybe up in Madison. Yeah, there was some trouble. Some files were burned. Some places were changed. Shut. Yeah, yeah. But the draft board where I'm from, Battlefield, Michigan, they had no problems pulling those kids every month, and they did it. So the problem was, how do we fight wars of foreign expansion and adventure in the future, and not have this blowback of this terrible thing we've got now with the, with the, with the, the war? And they were, and that's why that's why we have an all volunteer force. And people join the military; they no longer represent a cross section of society. Because who the hell would join the military and go to fucking Iraq? I mean, if you have a choice, who would do that? Excuse me, French. And so that's the big thing. I, there's a little story in the Times this the other day. Now, I don't believe the Times ever really read, but I do believe so. And it said Flint, Michigan, is rated as the worst city in America today. I think. I could think of competitors. But anyway, Flint, <laughs> Michigan had 80,000 auto jobs in the 1960s. That's the town that, you know, Michael Moore said his film, Roger and Me, which is a hilarious film if you've never seen it. It's one of the best pieces of political filming I've ever seen. I think Roger, Michael Moore is a nut, but that film is great. <laughs> I, I, I really do. But that told us once, I was at a, con I got a little anecdote here. I, I, or I will. Uh, I was at a thing in New York and he showed up there. It was a fundraiser for the Center for Constitutional Rights. There's all these big muckety-muck lawyers sitting around. And uh, he says, you know, you guys are missing it. You're missing it. And I was like, what do you mean, Michael? He says, you don't get it. you got to get behind OJ. He's completely framed up. Hmm, <laughs> okay. Well, that was Michael Moore's uh, political insight into uh, that, that case, but anyway. But the film, the film, the, getting to Flint, I'm digressing too much, I'm sorry. The, the Flint had 80,000 jobs in the 1960s, today they have less than eight. That's 72,000 hospital plan, pension plan, union wage jobs, gone. Gone, never to return. They may not, we may not even have a, we may not even have a domestic auto industry uh, in this country in another 10 years, and that's you know, the talk in some of the Wall Street uh, places that you, that you read. So that's an incredible shift, and that means that that opens the doors to the military, the recruiters, you know all this. They pay them wages. As I say, it's a lot better than the night window at Wendy's, a lot better. Kids come back, kids re-enlist in Iraq, hating every minute of it. And when they get to the end of it, they say, if you re-enlist, I can promise you, you'll be at Fort Sill, you'll learn artillery, you don't have to come back here. 40, 30, 40 grand is a routine reenlistment bonus. Delta Force, Black Arts, 100,000 bucks. Why? Because they got to compete with, uh, with Halliburton, right? So they pay them that kind of money. So it's no way it can be described as other than a mercenary army, but that doesn't mean that we can't reach them. What we're trying to do at Drum, and I, can't, I don't have time to go into it now, but it's a reaching out. And what I want to leave you with is the thought that IBAW in this next year really must dedicate itself to the GI struggles. Doesn't mean they have to necessarily will form coffee houses, doesn't mean necessarily the projects will take the same forms of the Vietnam era, but need to really reach out in a different way for two reasons. One, because it's awfully important for our struggle, because it is the, I read Barack Obama president or not, I believe it's the only way we're really going to bring a substantial end to this war in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's the only way. And two, to build their own membership, strengthen their own group, and to uh, move forward. So that's my, my little editorial at the end. Um, I want to just say one last thing about Dave Klein, because he was mentioned. Dave Klein was quite a guy. And one of the things about Dave, 
was that he was unusual for a soldier because he had a very, very harrowing experience in Vietnam. You remember in the film, he talks about some. But Dave came right back to Fort Hood and he threw himself into the oleo strut and he worked there for a year and a half. And Dave had his issues and Dave had you know, his stuff too. But that's the kind of dedication that's pretty rare and needs to be uh, recognized. Well, since we seem to be talking about Dave Klein, um, you know, he was someone that I considered a friend and, um, and, uh, and someone that taught me a whole bunch of stuff about the, uh, the GI movement. Um, and I think that to his credit, not only did he come back and throw himself in a GI organizing, but after the sort of GI movement kind of had run its course in a sense and the work come to an end, he then became a trade unionist and a lifelong, you know, revolutionary. Um, and, and someone who was, um, you know, to, the last, to his last days, I mean, I, I remember seeing him just months before he passed away at a UFPJ conference here in Chicago. And um, you know, just an incredibly dedicated guy. Just and, and the same goes for Bill Bill Davis, that I also consider you know, someone who taught me and I think our our organization a whole bunch about that kind of work. Um, you know, I'm I'm gonna, in a sense, just sort of underline some of the points that have already been made. I mean, you know, I, I think that it, I, you know, it's it can't be overstated how important this history is for people who are trying to figure out, especially in a moment like this one, where the anti-war movement is sort of in a real uh, doldrum, you know, sort of limping along, um, to, to, to look back at this history and try to understand it and gather, you know, some of the lessons for um, the future. And I, I think that's, that's what I'm going to just try to, to deal with thematically, some of those. And I think that the first to begin with is just to understand that the work that has to be done today to rebuild the anti-war movement is going to be take a lot of very patient explanation as to how to go about building. Because the, the fact is that there was an immense advantage that the GI movement the last time had, which was that the civil rights movement had been going on for 10 plus years in this country. And pretty much everyone, it was like, it was you didn't have to argue like, oh, if you struggle and fight back, you might win something. I mean, that was like everyone knew that. Um, uh, if you found that the government wasn't listening to you, you know, well then you probably should stop lobbying and take to the streets, you know, and that could produce some results. I mean, you know, Civil Rights Voting Act and the Jim Crow segregation, I mean, these were huge things, you know, that, that kind of were just in the consciousness of every single person who uh, was alive in that period. And that's why especially the black GIs uh, were more radicalized, and, and but also why you know so many white GIs also came home and um, understood that kind of um, th those lessons. I think the other thing was that um, the GI movement the last time I think like this time you know developed a sense of its own history that was really important. You know Martin talked about um, going to sleep in or stay at the at the, the at the mall in in Washington around Dewey Canyon three in 1971. And um, actually, that had its precedent in 1932 with the March of the Bonus Army. People don't know that history. It's a fascinating history. There's a great book called The Bonus Army that goes through it all of um, World War I veterans who, in the midst of the Great Depression, were basically um, pissed off that the government, who had been, which had been promising them a bonus based on their military service during the First World War, you know, hadn't paid them. And, and they basically marched on Washington to demand it, Tens, uh, 10, 20,000 or so, Went to, went to camp out at Anacostia Flats and march on Washington and so on. And actually, it was Generals MacArthur, Douglas, and Eisenhower who went in with tanks and, you know, 
burned the camp to the ground, killed a, at least one soldier, and wounded many more in order to put down what they saw as a you know potential insurrectionary you know <coughs> struggle of GIs in the midst of the Great Depression. Um, and when people decided to organize from BVAW, Dewey Canyon Three, that was on their mind. And so when they and when the when the when the administration told them they couldn't stay there, they're like, okay, we won't, we won't. Um, well, this I think this was just like during the Bonus Army. We're not going to sleep here. We'll just stay up, you know. And so <laughs> and uh, and then the police would come and be like, uh, you know, well, actually, back in in, uh, in during the Bonus Army days, I mean, there was, um, you know, some of the police were who were, you know, like, well, you know, what am I going to do? These are war veterans. They're like, oh yeah, I don't see any sleeping going on here, you know. Um, so anyway, a sense of history. Um, I think is something that you know uh, is is a critical thing to, to that every kind of activist has to learn as as um, as people become sort of part of the movement. I think the other thing um, is that the VBAW understood deep down and always you know worked in collaboration with the domestic anti-war movement because they knew that the domestic anti-war movement was critical to turning GIs in general against the war. In other words. It's pretty hard to organize a soldier or a, a, you know, a military service member to turn against the war if their brother and sister and mother and father all think the war is a great idea and that they're you know, telling them that they're out there doing you know, the noble work of defending the country. But when the, the population as a whole turns against the war, when people start to organize and to, to put that on display, now suddenly soldiers have a sense that, like, um, that uh, there's an alternative, that there's a different way of looking at it and that there's, you know, um, uh, uh, things that um, that uh, you know a different way of, of, of approaching the war. Not you don't just have to go along. You can actually organize against it. Um, the other thing about um, the domestic anti-war movement and the reason that it was so important is that um, that actually VBAW itself um, grew in response to the the, the, the anti-war movement. In other words, the first VBAW itself got started was founded because several veterans who were anti-war came to an anti-war march in 1967 and met one another around a banner that someone had made who wasn't even a Vietnam veteran that said Vietnam veterans against the war. And so some veterans, you know, flooded there and they met each other and they started an organization. Now that organization um, actually, you know, grew for a bit, but in, in, in between 1967 and then into 68 when the presidential election took place, sounds familiar, the anti-war movement kind of didn't, wasn't all that strong. Because um, there was confusion about, you know, well, Nixon and um, and McCarthy and so on and so forth. Um, and when Nixon gets, you know, elected, it's a kind of a, you know, demoralizing thing. But by 1969, the sort of movement had regathered its steam and organized the moratorium days in the fall of 1969. And you had, um, on, in October, about 10 million people across the country uh, protest on a single day, like a kind of joint day of action. And then a month later, on November 15th in D.C., uh, there were between a half million and three quarters of a million people protesting in Washington, D.C., which was, um, you know, the largest demonstration in U.S. history up to that point. And um, the media reported that the, that, the, that the protest had no effect on Richard Nixon and so on. Of course, we learned later from history books that it did have a massive impact. Um, but the truth is, is that VVAW, which had been kind of fallen into sort of hibernation between 67 and 69, revived itself out of organizing for that. And then... Um, as it, you know, went from that to organizing Winter Soldier and Dewey Canyon 3 and so on, it was really Dewey Canyon 3, in fact, which allowed it to puncture sort of 
break through in the mass media with the throwing of the medals onto the steps and so on. And after that event is when they went through their massive expansion in membership from several hundred people to several thousand people um, very rapidly. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, that, that basic idea is that, that mass protest works and that the domestic movement is critical to, to, to the success of the GI movement, I think was something that was understood very uh, fundamentally in, uh, in that era. Um, I think lastly I'll say that, um, that one of the other things was that you know, anti-war movements as a, as a rule, and again, people who have been involved in this anti-war movement um, see this very directly, Go up and down. Um, there, there are times when it's sort of when there's an advance going on, when people are when there's some feels like there's vibrancy, when there's excitement. I mean, think of the, the period when Cindy Sheehan had just gone to Bush's ranch in Crawford, and it kind of sparked a whole bunch of local organizing and, and solidarity and so on. And then there's times when it, things sort of just feel like in retreat, and there's no forward momentum and so on. And I think that's really characterized the last year, year and a half. Um, and the same thing was true then. Um, and the, the VVAW found, nevertheless, all sorts of ways to do local organizing when the national movement was in a sort of sense of disorientation or disarray. So there was um, uh, just speaking out, uh, going to any place. I mean, one, when you read the Richard Stasewitz oral history, one of the things that, that is, there's a whole chapter on the work that they did. One person says, any time that any person offered us a place to speak, we went out and spoke. It gave us a platform. We could do counter-recruitment. We could basically try to meet new GIs that way. That was one of the things that they did that actually sustained their organization, even when there wasn't a lot of activity on a national scale. There were the GI coffee houses, which were you know, fantastically important for giving people a space to come and talk and discuss things. Um, and, um, and, and I guess, Finally, they, there was a sense of, of shared purpose and mission with other of the movements that grew up at that period. So that the that the GI movement, you know, began to you know embrace and was part of, and or at least expanded expanded the horizons of the GIs who were involved to participate in things that were related to the civil rights struggles, the women's liberation movement, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that um, today, um, this is something that you know. Uh, IVAW has a lot to learn from. I mean, in particular, you know, Todd talked about the way in which the, the VVAW struggled for years to get the uh, medical establishment to recognize PTSD. And I think that that was something that, that not only was about fighting for something that, that benefited very directly the people that were members of VVAW that had gone through the war and been shattered by it, but it, um, it also showed that VVAW would stand up for and defend those people, and it actually helped VVAW draw in people who were affected by that, and, um, and and gave it a sense of purpose. And I think that you know the truth is is that there's been already a, a massive scandal you know in this country around that. But so far, VVAW uh, has sort of stayed on the sidelines of that by and large, with the idea that instead of the main focus should be right now the question of bringing the troops home. And I think that you know by expanding. And uh, it, it helps to put pressure on the establishment in many more ways, and also show for people that are that are in the military that maybe aren't sure what they think about the war right now, but do know that that they want to have mental health care. Gives it it produces a bridge to draw in more people who um, maybe aren't in, you know one to all the questions about the war and so on. And I, I'll just end up with this um, that. Um, 
and I'm sure people have heard this basic idea before, but the thing that really ended the, the Vietnam War was a sort of coming together of three different dimensions. Um, and I think most importantly, there was a, you know, an intense Vietnamese resistance that, um, that Joe talked about yesterday in his talk about um, uh, black GIs in the Vietnam War. You can get a tape of it, it was a really great talk, um, where he talked about you know, that the Vietnamese not only fought against um, Chinese domination for a thousand years, and then, and then Japanese domination, and then French domination, and then American domination. So they had a little bit of history, a little experience with um, trying to stand up to outside occup occupying forces or forces attempting to occupy the country. But um, so there was that whole dynamic. There was a, a domestic anti-war movement in the United States um, that uh, that demonstrated that you know the, the population had turned against the war and was willing to. Uh, take to the streets to show that, and then uh, a, 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 a not just a GI movement against the war, not just pe not just GIs who said, "Hey, you know, I'm against the war too." There was a radical and a thoroughly corrosive, as far as the military was concerned, corrosive GI resistance movement <coughs> that um, today is this is this hidden history that many people don't know about, but has an incredibly rich and incredibly radical history that. Um, that is, you know, something that thankfully we have some some resources to, to, to help us investigate, and that, that you know, again, that, that sense of history is so important. You know, the soldiers in revolt, the Rinaldi pamphlet, Sir No Sir, the Nicosia book. I mean, there's so many things, and all the Haymarket books you can, you can check it out. But I think that we all sort of owe it to ourselves and to the movement as a whole to to, to dive into that and understand it better as part of rebuilding you know, uh, a GI movement and an anti-movement today. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.